energy, partnering with A Climate to Thrive to increase energy independence with solar technology. More at SolarizeMDI.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters is up next. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the sixth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about jobs in Maine. What's the future? We'll talk about global changes in employment and the nature of work, the shifting demographics of jobs and barriers to work, and what all of this means for Maine. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests today. Joining us in the studio is James Brees. Jim is the Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Maine. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you very much. Good to be here. Also in the studio with us today is Rosalie Hughes. Rosie? Rosie's good, yeah. Is an investigative journalist and writer at the Bangor Daily News and a contributor to the Main Focus series, an award-winning journalism and community engagement initiative at the Bangor Daily News. Welcome, Rosie. Thanks. Great to be here. Later in the program, we'll also welcome Beth Stickney by phone. Beth is the executive director of the Maine Business Immigration Coalition. She previously founded the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project, and she has over 20 years of experience in immigration-related policy issues. And uh, she'll be joining us in about uh, 20, 25 minutes, so stay tuned for that. In his novel called Company, the Australian author Max Berry wrote this, There are stories legends, really, of the quote-unquote steady job. Old-timers tell stories of how the company used to be back when a job was for life. The graduate snicker, a steady job. They've never heard of such a thing. That quote highlights the extent to which the nature of work and employment has changed over the last generation, along with our relationship between employers and employees. So, Jim, let me start by asking you the big sort of sweeping question. What have been the global trends in jobs and employment over the last generation, and how have those trends landed in Maine? <clears throat> Thank you, Anne. Uh, appreciate it. Um, that's a big question that uh, will get us going. That, that's for sure to wake up some listeners. So to me, it boils down to uh, four things. I would have said three, but I think it's a changing world. It's always changing. Uh, that's the only constant that's given is change. But in the last 25 years, the big thing to keep in mind is uh, China. Uh, China has uh, really changed the uh, the globe, quite honestly, um, with its economic turnaround and build up. 80% of Chinese lived in poverty. Poverty at the time was defined as living on $1 a year. Uh, and so now they have some of the most billionaires in, in, uh, in, in the world. So uh, major uh, changes, uh, 350 million people uh, moved uh, in China from rural China into the cities for manufacturing. Uh, the changes in China were, were huge there, but the ramifications are global. 
their growth has changed uh, Asia, has changed uh, Africa, has changed Europe, and changed the United States, quite honestly. I will say that in terms of uh, global production, the growth in China really came at the expense of Europe, not really the United States. If you look at the share of global output uh, by the United States, it's been constant, but Europe has really declined as uh, China increased. So that's that's quite interesting. The second big influence, I think, is technology. Technology is always changing. You, we all have smartphones. You think of... Uh, uh, for some of our listeners who went to school, they had, you know, select IBM typewriters and thought they were really cool then. Uh, they were hard to get, and so we don't walk around with typewriters. And so technology has just absolutely changed uh, everything we do, whether you're in services, um, professional services, manufacturing, it, it really doesn't quite matter. The third thing is aging. Uh, aging of the population. We talk about it in Maine a lot, but quite honestly, it's a global event. Uh, the countries that are impacted the most are really the countries that uh, were uh, a major part of World War II. Um, China, Japan, the United States, all of Europe were aging. So the baby um, boom effect is not just a U.S. phenomenon. You're saying it's it's a global yeah. phenomenon, quite honestly. And, you know, the baby boom, and then there's the baby boom echo, and right. then there's the baby boom echo echo. <laughs> so this is not just a one-time event, and there will be ups and downs. And depending on where you are in that generational cycle, you'll benefit or you'll be disadvantaged, quite mm-hmm. honestly. Um, and um, and I, uh, anyhow, that's how it works. And we have some real challenges in Maine. We have the oldest population in the United States, and we're tied with uh, Japan. So and we're we, aging faster. We are aging. Well, clock speed at the same time. But anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so that's the three I normally talk about. But the, the new one I want to add to the table and for the discussion uh, which is on a significant and terrifying rise in this country and in this state and in this area of the state is, uh, is drug abuse. Uh, I think that is really uh, hindering us, keeping us back. Um, it's not a good trend. The, uh, the number of uh, accidental deaths is just uh, increasing exponentially. Um, it's putting a lot of stress on families, on uh, employers, on social services, and um, we have to come to grips with that somehow. And uh, there are some models out there that I've read about recently, and if people are interested, we can get into that discussion, but we have plenty to talk about. Today. So let me let Rosie chime in mm-hmm. at this point and comment on those, because I know some of your reporting has been about how these factors actually play out. Sure. Among main workers, so go ahead. Sure, um, partic- that that last one, <laughs> drug the the drug uh, epidemic really touches on every single story that we do. You can't talk about um, an issue in Maine without having the opiate epidemic come into it. Um, in the last few months, the team that I'm on has looked at um, Maine's workforce, has looked at uh, the changing landscape of rural Maine, and we've we're now looking at um, the d- prison prisons. And in all of those, the opiate epidemic is there. Um, I could give, I mean, one of the stories that I worked on that um, is most directly related to that and this conversation is a, I did a story looking at, um, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but 
but um, it, it directly relates to jobs. And we, you know, we we looked at this national trend, which is the decline of um, men in their prime working age who are dropping out of the workforce. And we wanted to look at trying to find out, you know, it's a trend that is not only national, but it's worse in Maine than in most states. So currently there are 15% of men between the ages of 25 and 54 in Maine are not working and not looking for work. So they're not counted in the in the unemployment mm-hmm. figures. So uh, I went hunting for, for these men, uh, looking for them, and I, and I encountered quite a number of them. And... Um, ended up writing a piece featuring mainly one and in every single case um drug drug abuse was there in their pasts and and contributed to you know the fact that they they weren't in the labor force either they had a job and then they became addicted to drugs and it became harder to maintain their job or they grew up with drugs and so never entered the workforce Mm -hmm. i mean and i'm wondering if it's not only drugs although i understand that um, epidemic proportions of, of substance abuse in Maine and around the country. But I'm wondering, too, about other disability factors. You know, how many other otherwise working age men and women are uh, not working because of disability? And is that also a rising mm-hmm. trend? Uh, do either of you, you know about that? Well, I, I did, before I address that, I really don't know, but, you know, I'm a university professor, so I can talk about anything. But, <laughs> but, um, but I, I just want to mention, Rosie, that also um, uh, men growing on to higher education is really falling as well. Yeah. And for the last uh, decade and a half, uh, higher education has really been dominated in terms of numbers by, by women. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of literature on where did the men, the men go. Mm-hmm. I will say, however, Where did that, they go? I mean, well, why I don't is, know. We're still searching for them, but but I will, yeah. But I will say, in Maine, you know, we have a very high incidence of self-employment mm-hmm. in, in extraction, fishing, yeah. lumber, and they may not be part of the workforce. Uh, I think we have a very strong underground economy, mm-hmm. which I'm not saying is bad or good, but it's there. And so I think by which you mean people, a cash economy that may be yeah, yeah I mean good or bad depending yep. on who you are it's good for the workers the state might miss out on tax revenues so um, but um, but I think it's it's there mm-hmm. and that might explain maybe some fraction of of what's going on mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a large part but but we do have a very healthy um, self employment uh, industry in. Maine. Mm-hmm. You want to comment on that? Yeah, uh, I agree. Okay. <laughs> yes. What about the the disability factor? I mean, I've heard that yeah. that uh, you know, drug abuse aside, there are an increasing number of people who don't work because of disability, one yeah. reason or another. I've I looked into that a little bit for this particular story. I mean, listeners might already be aware that Maine has among the highest rates of disability in the nation. I think part of that is just because of our age. Um, and uh, if you break that down further, um, the largest category of disability in Maine is mental mental disabilities. So severe depression. Um, there's a category that they use called mood disorders. Um, and so, yes, in Maine, Maine, we have more people uh, than than average um, turning to disability. I can just say among the um, the young men who I met for this story. Um, I asked that I, I met up with a group of guys who, um, 
you know, I'm around their age. I'm around 30. They're all around 30. I, in my circles, I don't know a single person in the category of not working or not looking for work my age. But you, <laughs> once I found one person in this situation, I found a, a lot. Many. And they're, I would say, almost socially invisible to people who are part of the regular workforce. But once I asked them, you know, how many, you know, how many people do you know who are on disability or who are not working? The answer was all of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these guys' friends were on disability or trying to get on disability. Um, I have a quote here that really stuck out to me. There was a guy named Nick who's 29 years old, and he said to his friend, um, who I featured in the story, his name is Twitch, he who is Twitch is on disability um, for schizophrenia. And he, Nick said, turned to his friend and said, forgive me if I'm wrong, dude, but now that you're getting towards your 30s, didn't you feel like you just had to go out and get your disability because it's a losing battle every day? And Twitch said, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are guys who, I mean, <laughs> who r- regardless of, um, I, I don't doubt that Twitch does have, uh, you know, schizophrenia, but I also don't doubt that he could do some form of, you know, work if he, with a little bit of encouragement and help. Yep, yep. And he would like to, but he doesn't see any bright opportunities out there for him. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. So, I mean, some of it, too, has to do – so there, there are some of these demographic trends in the workforce and what's happening to people who might – be otherwise working, but there are also trends on the job side. And, you know, the quote that I introduced um, from Max Berry talks, you know, gets at this notion of the gig economy where, you know, you get a job and you've got a job for a couple of years and then you're looking for another job. It's not like you get a job with the, an employer at the mills and you're good for life. That's yeah. not the kind of world we live in anymore. And that is, for some people, probably a lot more stressful can you talk about the nat- the changing nature of jobs and industries and where the jobs are? Yeah, I, I can, but before I do that, I want to go back to Rosie's point and and uh, and what she say is absolutely true. But if you look into the future, looking into future trends, what's what's equally as disturbing is the number of children in Maine that live in poverty and are on the free lunch program. And that is growing exponentially by data from DHHS. And so in some sense, it's this perpetual cycle that uh, what Rosie talked about is at this point in time. But as you roll the, the movie forward and these children who go to school hungry, and there's a lot of research showing that you you – If you're hungry and exhausted and and no place to live, you're not going to learn in school. Mm -hmm. So it's just keeping time. And so the cycle is just going to actually probably get get worse in society, not better, uh, unless that cycle is broken. So that's that's the disturbing part. Well, let's go with uh, that for, for a minute. I mean, Senator, and I know we're talking about two different phenomena it, uh, when we talk about intergenerational poverty and children who, um, because of early disadvantage, come into adulthood without the preparation to be effective in the workforce. And then we have on the other side of that, um, Nebraska Senator Ben, ben Sass wrote this book that he's um, – doing interviews on now, which calls into question whether even middle-class American youth are being raised with a, an appropriate work ethic 
and whether they have the career drive in the coming generations that their parents have had. So we've got, you know, these upcoming generations really facing two different things which seem to be getting at whether the desire for work and the ability to work is going to be as strong in the next generation as it has been in the past. What about this question of work ethic and desire to work, even among those who could? And how does that relate to your question about um, college enrollment and the desire to get the skills needed to be effective? Well, uh, from my observation, the work ethic is there. Um, and the students that I see have tremendous work ethic there. But, of course, you're not seeing the ones who don't come to college, are you? Uh, no, I'm not. Yeah. But what my point is is that it's more the distribution of society. There are those bright, energetic people there, and they will be successful no matter what. And there are people who are disadvantaged. But I think that that gap is widening along with uh, and, and supported by, uh, you know, income distribution issues that we have in, in this country. Yeah. The, the gap is widening. So I, it's, I can't say, oh, all of youth is declining. <laughs> right. No, it's, 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 it's that gap, unfortunately. Yeah. Hey, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is jobs in Maine. What's the future? Our guests in the studio with us are Jim Brees, Associate Pre- Professor of Economics at the University of Maine, and Rosie Hughes, an investigative journalist at the Bangor Daily News and a contributor to the Maine Focus series. I interrupted Rosie. She was about to jump in on work ethic and the gaps in work ethic and intergenerational. Yeah, I guess I, <clears throat> I would just point out on the on the question of work ethic, um, one thing to note is that for for less educated Americans and including Mainers, wages have been falling, um, and in particularly for men, <clears throat> this this stuck out at me that the medi- median earnings of working men from ages thirty to forty five without a high school diploma fell twenty percent from nineteen ninety to two thousand thirteen. That's a huge drop. And for men with just a high school diploma, fell 13%. They also fell for women, but not as dramatically. And so I think when you're talking about work ethic and looking at guys who don't have a high school diploma or don't have um, a college diploma, they look at what their dads or, or moms were earning when they were growing up and see that compared to what, what they're able to get. And it's almost a sense of defeatism which is understandable you could i mean uh, going back to the guy i I wrote about named twitch he doesn't see a point in working Mm -hmm. because he's as he put it in um, more vulgar terms he said you know what's the point of going to a crummy ass crummy sorry crummy crummy job. job working with a crummy boss and making crummy pay um what's the point right um and so I think that whether you call it work ethic or um, defeatism, I think I think it is there, and it's and it can be understood too. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because we we hear from employers who have jobs that they can't fill, and we hear from people who would like meaningful work who can't find it, and somewhere we have this gap where mm-hmm. um, you know the workforce that we have and the work 
opportunities that we have are not quite matching up. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, we have um, Beth Stickney on the line, and I'd like to welcome her to the conversation. Beth is the executive director of the Maine Business Immigration Coalition, and um, you know, in this, in this gap between available jobs and available workforce comes the question of immigration, and I'll let Beth say just a few words about that. Welcome, Beth. Hi, thanks for having me as uh, part of the conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the issue of immigration and our workforce is just a critical one nationwide uh, because nationwide boomer baby boomers are getting older and retiring, but um, the 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 problem is even more acute in Maine, where we are the oldest state in the nation, and and quite frankly, we have challenges in kind of attracting immigrants to our state, um, both because of our, you know, remoteness and our climate being, people think of us as cold, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and just our homogeneity. Um, you know, there's, there, we, we definitely do have, you know, some challenges. Uh, but the business, the Maine Business Immigration Coalition is a coalition of, um, you know, business leaders and trade associations and um, economic development folks. We're actually a fledgling organization, so we're just starting to grow. Um, but the folks who see immigrants as really an asset to Maine's workforce and Maine's economy, um, as well as, you know, helping improve our diversity, which quite frankly is an attraction tool for many of our native-born young people. Um, who, you know, many of whom go away for college and sort of, quote, get off the farm, you know, um, and how do you bring them home uh, once they've, you know, seen Gay Perry, as it were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they, they want, they want uh, to live in, in communities that are more diverse after they've been exposed to more diversity. Um, so there's, you know, all sorts of reasons why immigrants are an important part of our um, equation. So, you know, from that scenario, immigration is one of the solutions to an aging population and an insufficient workforce. But that sort of still leaves the question of are we adequately preparing the people that we have for the 21st century jobs and how are those jobs actually changing? I mean, the industries are changing. The nature of the jobs is changing. What are some of those big changes and um, are we adequately preparing people, immigrant or native, to deal with those changes? Well, there certainly has been a transformation in the main economy away from manufacturing towards uh, services uh, and retail sales. And, And we've seen that for the last two decades, quite honestly. Manufacturing lost well over a third of its employment. Uh, or is it two-thirds, but it's it's way down from where uh, it used to be. Um, there's, there's a little bit of shining uh, stars out there of reemergence of manufacturing, but not in the big way. The paper mills lose thousands, and L.O. Bean bringing back the bean boots is hundreds, <laughs> so they certainly don't offset. So manufacturing is, is uh, in, a, in a steep decline. The services, you know, there's different types of services. There's professional services where you definitely do need a a higher education and a degree, but there's, you know, other services as well. And they're all projected to grow 
Um, but not all services are plush either. So, and they don't pay a, a livable wage. So you really have to kind of dissect the, the data. Um, but it, to me, because of technology, no matter what your job is, uh, anywhere in the world, it's always going to be changing, which kind of calls for lifelong learning. Right. Um, no matter what it is. I mean, you know, look at automobiles today. You you basically need to be an IT technician to work on a car. It's all computer-operated. And as we move into autonomous cars, you can imagine what that will will be like. And a lot, the of, a lot of the new jobs are team-oriented. So I'm looking at this Pew report, and it says that, um, that occupations requiring social skills are going to be growth opportunities. Opportunities requiring analytical skills are going to be growth opportunities. Um, opportunities requiring physical skills are not going to be mm-hmm. growth opportunities. And that gets at some of the gender differentiation, mm-hmm. you know, where men and women may at least perceive their opportunities differently as those profiles change, right? Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Rosie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, of the fastest growing occupations in Maine, the three categories are in healthcare restaurants and personal care which is like hair for example hair salons through 2024 and what what those occupations have in common as is they tend to be more feminine more women are attracted to them and for guys like twitch who i wrote about these these jobs are either too high skilled you know in healthcare you know he doesn't see himself ever becoming a doctor for example they're either too high skilled or too feminine in his eyes i mean as he put it to me he wants he wants a job with with hard physical work he he said that he said the satisfaction of doing all the hard work and doing it right that's the work i like backbreaking work so he's worked under the table as a roofer raking blueberries and you know the number of CNAs and nurses we're going to need in Maine in the next, you know, decade is enormous. But I, <laughs> the psychological barriers that a guy like Twitch would have to overcome to um, enter a profession that has typically been dominated by women are pretty enormous. En- enormous, yeah. You want to comment on that, Jim? The gender. Well, uh, Rosie's right, but I think there are are changes. Uh, when you look at the number of male nurses, uh, you look at the number of, um, of male support workers in hospitals, I, I think those numbers are actually in, increasing. I, I think it's changing not in a significant way, not in a major way, but it's the beginning of the breakdown of those uh, stereotypes. Uh, you mentioned health care. Health care, we're going to have a crisis in the state of Maine. Uh, with the aging population, there's going to be more and more people who need services. The problem is that the health care industry has the oldest uh, employees working, which means they're going to be facing retirements very quickly. And so there's going to be a huge shortage at a time where there's great demand for their services. Um, and we live – the other part that hasn't been mentioned yet is Maine is primarily rural, and uh, that's going to have very unique challenges. Uh, Are in, most of the new jobs going to be in urban areas, would you say? Well, you know, there's, there's the, the uh, resurgence of organic farming, which is great, and a lot of youth is coming back and doing malts for the craft beer industry. Um, 
Uh, and so there, there's those, you know, shining examples, which is great. But um, we see uh, youth moving to Bangor and Portland yep. and Boston yep. and further uh, afield. And, uh, and part of that is uh, excitement, and you can't blame them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of it is that they have to follow where the money is yep. and where the uh, economic opportunity is. As immigrants so, are, you know, coming absolutely. to the U.S. for... Yeah. Is, yeah. Beth isn't still well, on the line. Yeah, she and, is. Oh, she is. Oh, good. Go ahead, yeah. Beth. The, well, and, and the, the reality is for so many immigrants, I mean, it's interesting because the immigrants who have been coming here uh, since 2010 has been uh, a really highly educated crop of immigrants. You know, their, their rate of bachelor's degrees and graduate degrees is higher than our native-born population. It just talking about Maine, not just nationwide, though the, it's similar nationwide as well. And uh, yes, immigrants, because they're starting all over, and because you know, there are barriers to um, working up to their full capacity, um, such as, you know, for example, if you were a lawyer in the Dem- Democratic Republic of the Congo, you can't practice here right. until you go back to law school. Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and because you can't even sit for the bar exam until you've gone through that, you know, that, that hurdle. Um, and so people are working at, um, you know, professions or careers that are far below their capacity. Um, but, you know, they're willing to do it because they know they're starting over. I mean, they, they prefer not to, you know, if there were an option. But, you know, their, their drive to start over and to, you know, make opportunities for their children is enormous. So you'll have professional-level immigrants who are willing to go and work in the nursing homes mm-hmm. and the assisted livings, uh, living settings and who are willing to do, um, you know, work in factories and manufacturing um, just to make sure that they, you know, have a roof over their head and their children's heads. Um, and, you know, we need changes at the policy level. Uh, to make it easier for people to transfer skills, whether it's immigrants or whether it's, you know, veterans or people trained in other states, um, so that, for example, they can test in to professions um, based on their experience. uh, For which they trained in their home country. Right, right, right. Right, right, exactly. And, and, you know, and that's something that we really need to tackle, and there are lots of people trying to work on that, and and hopefully down the road um, we'll make progress. Let but me do a station break now, and I see Rosie sure. trying to break in on this, too. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is jobs in Maine. What's the future? Our guests this morning are Jim Brees, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Maine, Rosie Hughes, an investigative journalist and writer at the Bangor Daily News, and Beth Stickney, the Executive Director of the Maine Business Immigration Coalition coalition. Um, I, w- I want to sort of talk about um, to what other barriers besides, oh, you wanted to say Could something, I just, Jay? Yeah, please <laughs> jump in there. <laughs> as hard as a journalist not being, I have a question. Um, could I ask Beth a question? Sure yeah. thing. Yeah, Beth, I'd be curious to hear from you. Um, you know, it's it's the rural areas in Maine that are experiencing more um, more of the, you know, more of the issues around aging population and population loss to what extent do you see um immigrants as helping as moving into rural areas in maine i mean often when we talk about immigration in maine 
we're, we're actually talking about Portland and perhaps Augusta, Lewiston. Um, what do you what do you think about immigration into rural areas? Well, well, it's interesting because I mean, immigrants in fact already are all over the state. Um, though some of them are here more temporarily, but for example, you can look at Millbridge and see a situation where people used to come up as migrant farm workers and then just realized that you know they could move from doing blueberries to doing sea cucumbers to doing reef tipping to doing reef making and and you know make a living year round um hopping from job to job and keep their children in one school system as opposed to dragging their children from harvest to harvest around the country and disrupting their schooling so now you have you know a rural community like Melbourne that has really been given a new life because of the the Mexicans and others who have decided to make Melbridge their permanent home. Interesting. Um, and and in terms of rural, you know, I, I think the key thing is um, immigrants are, you know, in my experience, and I've been working with immigrants for over thirty years. You know, they're they're happy to go to where the jobs are, where opportunity is. Um, but it can be really hard if there's no community. So, to, and then in Maine, the big, there, some of the big problems are housing and particularly transportation. Well, that's interesting. Um, I, I want to ask the question about those barriers for Maine people too, because mm-hmm. housing and transportation and childcare are yes. barriers <laughs> just for true. immigrants. They're barriers for lots of people. Um, and so, I mean, some of this has to do with your willingness to relocate, to abandon your community, to make a new start someplace else. And some main people in rural communities may not be willing to make that choice. But the other thing is, if you're in a community, what are some of those other barriers? And uh, while we answer that question, I'm going to give the listeners a chance to call in. So at this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. If you want to call, um, the number is 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. But if you do get through, um, please make your question brief and take your answer offline so that others can get through. Uh, So uh, let those calls come in now, and I'll give people an, uh, in the in the guest studio and on the phone a chance to answer the question about barriers to work. So I see Rosie nodding. Go ahead. Oh, well, I can I'll, I can answer one piece of yeah. that. Um, one thing that my team, my colleague Matt Stone, looked into was childcare in mm-hmm. Maine, um, which is often cited as a as a barrier to work for people. Um, what what Matt found was that the childcare voucher program in Maine. Um, it's been chronically underfunded and also very difficult to use. And in each of the past four years, Maine has left over $4 million in federal funds unspent that could have been spent on um, providing vouchers for people with low incomes for childcare. Um, it's also very difficult to use. Um, only 6% of eligible children in Maine are using vouchers because, you know, many families don't know about it. And, um, and also, um, it can be uh, sorry. It's very complicated to to apply for. Yeah. So, do you so. want to chime in on the barriers question? Well, Jim, I, I'd we... like to kind of touch base on the community issue. 
And, um, you know, we I don't know how to say this diplomatically, but New England is known as not being as open, the people as they are from the Midwest. Uh, and, you know, from people from different countries and a different culture, they might they might feel that uh, there's not any animosity against them, but they just don't feel perhaps a, as welcome. The the uh, the other thing is is if there's a, a rural community of a very very advanced aging population, uh, young immigrants, young anyone is not going to find that all very exciting. <laughs> um, and the other the other thing, Beth, I want to ask you is there kind of a a threshold number where uh, I th- I, I'm guessing that immigrants don't want to be the only one from their country in a particular area. And do, well, that, do you yeah. need some, you know, threshold number where people really take root? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, that's a, a key thing. I think, for example, they had um, up in the Midcoast, there was a family that was uh, resettled just because housing costs were getting so high down, you know, here in Portland and even, you know, a little bit in Lewiston. And, but they were the only family, and in the end, they just felt so isolated that one by one, particularly the children, the family started, just who were old enough, you know, like 19, to sort of make their way back to are you, Portland. Hold, hold um, are you talking about the Thomaston family? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, uh, um, you know, which, which I, I, quite frankly, I, can I can't remember. That might have been you. Who I can see Ro- Rosie wants to with them. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, wait a minute. So we got a caller on the line, so okay. I don't want but answer this very quickly, and then we'll, well go to our caller. Well, just quickly, so, yeah. So, well, I, I just wanted to say that there are, though, when, when you can take a group of, you know, maybe a couple dozen, and certainly when there's seasonal work in the hospitality industry, like in Bar Harbor right now, for example, you know, if there were employers, and I've been talking to a few of them who are saying, if we can offer housing, be able to get people oh, to move Beth. up. And the one thing about immigrants is because they've already moved so much, they're actually more likely to strike off and do something new like that yeah. than maybe a native Mainer is. Um, but but it really does help if they have sort of a cohort so they've got some peers and can, they can feel comfortable with as they're settling. Thanks, Beth. Let's go to Charlie on the phone. Yes, hi. I just wanted to say I think this is a great uh, program, as the Democracy Forum often is. And Thank you, Charlie. And you a wonderful job of uh, identifying the problems. I wonder if maybe we could spend a little more time talking about what we're going to do about it. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, it requires a lot of creative uh, solutions, and uh, there are some out there, I think. Uh, who wants to tackle that one? You want to go first on that, Jim? Creative solutions? Um, well, you know, Charlie, thank you for the question. And uh, I've, I've been in the state uh, for, for decades. No, I'm not born here, but as soon as I learned about Maine, I came as soon as I could. And, uh, and I'm here. And to me, in terms of employment and workforce development, there's always been a discussion in Augusta of the chicken or the egg, which one comes first. And so do you train and educate everyone and hope that Uh, new firms develop and that outside firms come in or do you attract outside firms and they come in and hope that they employ people? And what I reconcile in my own head is that it's not one or the other. You have to do it at the same time. You have to bring up both sides. Uh, We need to encourage um, uh, employers to come to the state of Maine. We have to encourage employers who are in Maine not to leave. We need to uh, create an environment of entre- uh, entrepreneurship where new new firms are created. 
But at the same time, we need to educate, and by educate, I mean very broad, uh, 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 workforce development for those uh, industries. Um, but they have to be targeted. If, if you but give people new skills that are not needed in the state of Maine, they're only going to leave. Right. If you bring firms in that need a certain type of workers that Maine doesn't have, they're going to eventually leave or, or bring in people themselves, which doesn't help Mainers, quite honestly. So what we need, as I would say, is a coordinated effort with all people at the table of state government, employers, the broader definition of education and work on a cohesive strategy of um, uh, of workforce development coupled and targeted with industries. That's, that's good. I mean, but we are sort of at full employment right now where those industries that are here cannot find enough qualified workers. And then at the same time, we have lots of workers who can't find meaningful work. So we've got some kind of a mismatch going well, on. Well, and you just contradicted yourself, which is trying to prove a point of mine, is I don't look at unemployment numbers. You just said we have low unemployment, but a lot of people who can't find jobs. Well, exactly. So, that's to her point. But that's because they're not in the workforce. That's right. my point exactly. Well, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't look at unemployment numbers. Yeah. That's I mean, my point. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. I think one concrete, and when we're talking about solutions, and it just goes to your point, one one thing is job training programs, which basically train people for jobs that are for jobs that are in need. Mm-hmm. Um, they work. They've they've been studied quite a bit and have been shown to to work more. They get people into jobs that are in demand and they help people stay there and move up. Do we um, have those programs? Yeah, so we do, but we, Maine puts not a dollar into them. Um, we get federal funding for them and their access through Maine's 12 career centers. But that federal funding has declined over time. And at the same time, many states do put their own dollars behind workforce programs. Maine does not. Um, so that's one thing that, that Maine could be doing. Um, and, and the other problem is that these programs aren't reaching a lot of the people who actually need it because we're at full you know almost at full employment um the people who aren't employed now are the are, tend to be the ones with higher barriers to employment whether you know the barrier is uh, drug use or low education or you know a variety child care, of child transportation, care variety whatever. of things so they're harder to get into the workforce but the performance standards um, that are set out by the federal dollars don't encourage career centers to serve these riskier populations and to reach out to them. So if, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm not a politician, but I believe that if Maine were to put some money behind it, um, perhaps that they could find a way to encourage career centers to, to, to rather than having them, you know, do as many people as they can, focus on the riskier populations and spending more time with them could mm-hmm. be fruitful. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the child care thing earlier. Yeah. You're tuned right. to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Jim Brees, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Maine, Rosie Hughes, an investigative journalist at the Bangor Daily News, and Beth Stickney, Executive Director of the Maine Business Immigration Coalition. Jim has his hand up. He wants yeah, to Charlie, get I don't know if you're choice. still there or not, uh, but I hope you're still listening anyhow, at least by radio. Um, you know, you asked for uh, actions that can be taken, and um, the one thing I've been monitoring for, for a couple of 
decades now um, in Maine is what I call value-added economic activity. And value-added economic activity as a measurement is our gross state product divided by the number of workers. So it's really the value that a worker produces uh, in a year. Um, and value-added economic activity in Maine is the lowest in New England and probably third or fourth on the bottom of the United States. Value-added activity, an example is we cut down a tree, export it to Canada. There's no value added in that. We cut it down and shipped it out. We catch lobster, we put it in a crate, ship it to Canada. There's, there's no value. I mean, it creates employment of extraction, but the value added of, of canning uh, the lobster or processing lobster or processing the lumber into plywood, which is then comes back to us from Canada, or taking the lumber and making it into furniture. So what to me, what one of the solutions is, which is more of a perception and more of a management thing, is to get into more value-added economic activity. Mm-hmm. And, and quite honestly, that alone, even with the limited labor market, can change the whole state yep. because we're having the current number of workers, not even more workers, but the current number just doing more value, yep. adding more Uh, to the the state. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. We have another caller on the line. It's Mike from Booth Bay. Go ahead, Mike. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Happy to. Um, Well, I wanted to call in is that uh, talking about like supporting a labor force in Maine, um, my wife and I recently moved to Maine a couple of years ago from Connecticut. in the last year, we bought a house here in Booth Bay Harbor, but everywhere we go, it seems like um, people are always, you know, confused as to how we moved here and how, or what we do year-round. Um, but also, like, it seems like moving to a place like Booth Bay Harbor, we're almost priced out of living in the area. And so if, you know, if there's not affordable housing around, you know, what can you do to really sustain a labor market if they're in a lot of ways like a place like Portland or Booth Bay Harbor kind of priced out of living in the area? It's an excellent question. And right here on MDI, where workers in the hospitality industry can't afford to live on MDI at the same time, there's no public transportation to get from other places to the island. This is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Rosie's nodding. Go. Oh, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> not going to agree. <laughs> I don't have too much to add. I just agree. Yeah. I, I don't have much to add to that. What, what about it? No, I, I, I totally, I totally agree. Of course, in, in Booth Bay Harbor, I'd suggest uh, Mike just move back one block, and <laughs> values fall pretty fast once you get away from the water. But, but uh, Portland, I mean, um, uh, I was interviewed by another reporter. Of uh, is there a potential uh, uh, bubble bursting of uh, real estate in, in the Portland area? In Portland, uh, a lot like Vancouver is uh, a lot of the, the new purchases are by spec- out-of-state speculators uh, who find Boston too too expensive and they move in and, and run the, the prices up. And it puts uh, a real hardship on the people who are in the lower-paid jobs down, downtown. 
Um, New York City is certainly has that problem for centuries, but they have much better transportation and people can come in from the suburbs where we don't have that transportation. And we don't really have the population density to support the kind of public transportation infrastructure that New York has, but somewhere between public policy for affordable housing and public policy for public transportation, we've got to find a way to make this work, right? I mean, are there solutions that we could be adopting here? Well, and, and, you know, there are, you know, there have been issues for transportation for people forever um, in Maine because of the rural character of the state. But, you know, for example, when IDEX um, needed employees, you know, they worked with the, the local transportation system to, you know, stim- basically work out a public-private partnership, as I understand it, that um, the metro would add um, bus routes from Portland um, right out to um, to IDEX and Westbrook for, you know, on the schedule of their three different shifts. Um, and we had L.L. Bean busing people to... Um, from the Lewiston area down to Brunswick um, because they didn't have transportation, but they needed the workers. And there have been, you know, there there are discussions about whether, you know, backyard farms should be providing transportation to help people get up to or or possibly even buying housing so that people can, you know, work um, at backyard farms. Uh, so, I mean, it really does take, I think, some creativity. But the other issue on the housing front is, you know, is there is a bit of nimbyism going on. It's not just that people are investing, but, um, but for example, in South Portland, a lot of people from Maine who have, I mean, from Portland who have been priced out of South Portland, uh, of Portland have been moving across the bridge or going to Westbrook or whatever. But, you know, South Portland has just proposed a couple of new affordable housing um, projects, and one of them was, you know, proposed to be in Knightville, but Knightville is now becoming trendy, um, and the residents of Knightville said, you know, not in our backyard. Right, right, right. And that just got shot down. Um, Rosie wants so, to jump in here, Beth. Yeah, Let's well, give her a shot. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I, I just thought I would um, just share a little bit. It might be interesting to share a little bit about what I learned from spending time with this family in Thomaston. Yeah. Um, in They moved last August to, from Portland to Thomaston. They're the first refugee family to ever be resettled outside of um, um, either Portland, Lewiston, or Augusta. And, I mean, as as Beth said, it's been really challenging for them. Um, I think we looked... I, I was interested to ask the question, you know, could refugees perhaps be part of the part of a little solution to Maine's rural Maine's population decline. And so I followed this Congolese family of 15 who had spent the last two decades in a Tanzanian refugee camp uh, for a couple. I got to know them for a couple of months. Um, It helps that I I speak French so I could communicate with them. And (laughs) the the challenges of being a family of 15 in a town um, of under 3,000 people were just enormous. They were there partly because of the housing issues in Portland and partly because this nursing home um, was desperate for workers. And, you know, so Catholic Charity said, well, we have mm-hmm. <laughs> a family of with six adults that can, that can work there. And I would say the main challenges for them were um, transportation. They had to rely on the nursing home to, to drive them to and from work, and they don't have any way of transportation 
And but the big one for a family like this moving to a small place is community. Nobody, you know. I think according to the census, the census, there are like three black people in Thomaston. Here is a family of 15. Um, not only do they look different, but they speak a different language. Their culture is entirely different. And at least in Portland and or Lewiston, they would find other Congolese people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was but, lonely. Yeah, lo- loneliness was the biggest problem, and and one of the family members has now moved back to moved to Portland because of that. But they're still there, most mm-hmm. of them. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think the question is, I mean, clearly that this family has helped, is helping the employer. Um, right. The question is, can it work for the newcomers themselves? And will yeah. they, will the community of Thomaston and perhaps Embrace other them. communities yeah. be able to support them enough that they want to stay? Yep. And other people may want to come. Yeah, and there needs to be, I mean, you know, what what has worked, you know, in other parts of Maine and also other parts of the country is when there really is the will of the kind of, I'll call it host community (laughs) to reach out and say, let's build some bridges. And I mean, things as simple as, you know, if there's a bean supper at a church, you know, saying we really want to engage this family and we're going to ask them to come and bring some of the dishes that they would make um, and share their food. And, you know, for example, in Millbridge, that was that was a huge turning point was when they started doing like, you know, church suppers together. And all of a sudden people who were kind of hostile and had the, you know, just were not receptive at all were able to engage and go, oh, these are just normal people. These are nice people. They're, you know, they're not Latino drug dealers. Right. Um, and the food's good. Right. And, and, the, and the food is good. And I mean, truly breaking bread right. you know, can make a difference. But it is. I, but I do think there, there's a real um, issue about having a critical mass. I mean, one of the reasons why Lewiston in the end ended up being successful was that there were enough people, you know, Somalis that were resettled there by um, Catholic charities that those people were able to sort of cling to each other during the hard early days, and then they were able to sort of say, well, actually, we kind of like it here. It's yeah. small, it's quiet, mm-hmm. it's, you know, our kids are, you know, feeling safe in the schools, and then and then word spreads, and then people Beth, move, you know, people who are in Portland or people who are in Atlanta. I have said, to interrupt oh, you now, Beth, thing. because we are starting to yeah. run out of time, and yeah. I want to give everybody a chance to make one little wrap-up comment. So, um, and you know, to Charlie's point, concentrating on solutions, if we may, for a little um, upbeat ending here. Jim, go ahead. Final parting thoughts. Well, I don't think there's just one answer to it. Quite yeah. honestly, this has uh, been uh, occurring, all these uh, uh, changes for for well over a decade. Um, and there's been a lot of written and researched, but, you know, a lot of those things get shelved, unfortunately. And so people are not rising up and really uh, taking to the streets to do things. Uh, And uh, I come back to uh, this value-added economic activity. I think we can certainly do workforce enhancement, workforce growth. But the real question is what are you going to do with your workforce? Uh, And you need those value-added jobs. And you need those value-added jobs, Beth, very quickly, last comment from you. Sure. Um, well, one thing that we haven't touched on is that as far as immigration um, in Maine and immigrants in Maine is we do need we do need federal immigration law reform. And with the dysfunction in Congress, I don't know when that's going to happen, but we clearly have a system that's not working 
for, you know, keeping families together and it's not working for our economy um, when you have, you know, a limit on the number of uh, seasonal um, non-agricultural workers. That means that, you know, a lot of our, our tourist industry wasn't able to get the workers they needed this summer. Um, you know, we just, we definitely need federal yeah. immigration law reform, I mean, that's but we hurting. also need public-private partnerships um, to change to change policy, and and we also, there are some things that we just simply need to throw money at. There's a bill that's pending in this current le- legislative session, LV-1492, sponsored by Roger Cates, that would increase funding for ESL because, for example, for immigrants, not having the same level of English fluency that I have yep. um, can be a barrier, yep. and yet there's a 400-person waiting list to get into English classes Thanks, at Portland Adult Ed. Uh, going to Rosie, last parting comments then? Sure. Wow. Um, I echo what, what, what my colleagues have just said. I think when, when you look at what can an individual person do, um, I think about, you know, there's, there's little things that anyone could do, for example, um, to, help, to help get someone back in the workforce. I mean, we have 93,000 people between the ages of 25 and 54 in Maine who are not in the workforce. If you know one of these people who is not in the workforce but you think maybe would like to be or could be, give them some encouragement and support. All of the guys that I spoke to for my article about men who are out of the workforce echoed the fact that they hadn't ever gotten encouragement or support or people saying, I think you'd be good at this. So that's a very small thing that anyone could do. Um, in addition to, you know, calling their Congress people and, and asking them to support child care, more funding for child care, uh, job training, um, and transportation, transportation, right. housing. And, and the immigrant issues that Beth raised, I know, are hitting Hancock County particularly hard. So those are all all very excellent, excellent suggestions. Um, we are now starting to run out of time and so I'm going to thank our guest this morning, James Brees the Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Maine Um, Rosie Hughes an investigative journalist and writer at the Bangor Daily News and a contributor to the Maine Focus series which if you haven't um, checked it out it is really great and they did a wonderful series on jobs in Maine so um, we posted a link to it on our website and have a look when when the show's over and then lastly Beth Stickney executive director of the Maine Business Immigration Coalition thank you all for being on the program this morning you've been listening to the Democracy Forum this is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East produced in cooperation with WERUFM Thank you to Amy Brown, who was our engineer at WERU this morning, and thank you to our listeners. We'll be continuing this conversation on jobs in Maine on Wednesday, June 21st, beginning at 5.30 p.m. at Pat's Pizza in Ellsworth. If you're in the area, uh, Hancock County, please come down to Pat's, and we'll have another panel and a further discussion of this topic and uh, little free snacks. Uh, Join us there. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other topics in our series. And then we'll see you next month, uh, third Friday in June, July, excuse me, when our topic will be civil discourse. Can we still do it? Uh, Third Friday in July, 10 o'clock on WERU. Thanks very much. We'll see you then.